This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we have not done Q&A in a while, and that is a major disservice to you. And I am so sorry that I've offended so many of you by not getting to your questions. But today, we're going to get after. We've got a lot of questions, a lot of sports questions today. And guys, if you want your questions to be answered in a future episode, just make sure you DM me on any of our social media platforms. Just shoot me a DM. I'll try to find it and put that in our Q&A bank. Or you can just send the questions to me directly to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. And here's the thing that I will tell you from the beginning before we get into the first question. A lot of you guys have turned me on to particular authors or particular speakers or particular news stories that I was not aware of. And so when you guys send me content, whether it's an article or, hey, have you checked out this book or this podcast? Just send that to me. Even if you just think about it, just send it to me, DM it to me, email me, just send it my way because I'm a content junkie and I'm constantly looking for stuff that's going to appeal to you guys. So if you individually, you know, audience member, if you're a fan of this and you like that person's content and you think that they should be on our show, I'm probably going to be interested in that. So make sure you send that my way. But let's go ahead and get into the first question for today. Why do you have ads running in your show now? Please don't ruin the show by running ads. So this is actually a a comment and question that I got here recently, because as you may have noticed over the last couple of months, there are advertisements now running in the podcast. There are some where I'm actually reading the advertisement, which is cool because these are people that, you know, want to follow what we're doing. So Stevenson Knives and Softhold, you know, the gun magnet, you know. It's great, and we're excited to have them as kind of part of the team. But then there's something else that's called programmatic ads. So they may run at the beginning of the podcast. They'll run throughout. Now, here's the thing. Some of you have been like, oh, my gosh, you know, the ads are coming like right in the middle of your sentences. But they're but they're not. So whenever I'm listening through, I get to actually mark where the ad would pop up if it does pop up. And I do it in between thoughts. Right. So I'm not going to put it in the middle of a thought because I'm, you know, I'm like a Nazi when it comes to, you know, content and having it flow and all those different things. So that's kind of where that is. So if you have a you know more trained ear, these quick ads that show up are not really going to bother you. But here's the other thing. That's not really the main point. This is kind of the macro point. A lot of you guys are not, you know, big on change. And for me personally, I'm not big on change either, right? So if I had been listening to a show since 2017, and then all of a sudden there are ads that are popping up, I'd be, hey, you know what? There didn't used to be ads here. I want this show to be the exact same show that I've loved for all these years. And I don't want it to change at all. I get it. I have a lot of that in my personality. But here's the deal. The way that we were running the podcast and the way that we were kind of doing that part of our business, it was not sustainable over the long run, especially if we decided to expand. Okay, so we made a decision here internally a while ago to get with an organization that was going to help grow this podcast to, you know, get out to even more people to equip more men to be able to push back darkness. And one of the ways that we need to be able to do that is to be able to generate revenue. Okay, and so I know for some of you, it's like, oh, talking about money is weird and we don't have to get into all the percentages and everything like that. But guys, if you want more content like this, I've told you before, the only we don't sell anything. Right. So it's our donors that that are basically keeping us afloat. And as we go into the future, as we hire more people, as we expand the offerings that we're doing, we need to be able to generate our own revenue right in order to do that. And so that's the main reason why we have ads on the podcast. So for some of you that think that I've sold out or that, oh, my gosh, my show's been ruined. Guys, you have a fast forward button on your on your you know phone wherever you're listening to the podcast. So a lot of podcasts I listen to, I will fast forward through the ads. Some I don't because they're actually interesting to me. I would suggest that you listen to them. And guys, at the end of the day, a lot of these ads are like 30 seconds long. So you can deal with it for 30 seconds. Again, if you are a supporter of this show and what we're doing and what we're building with Undaunted Life, that's one of the ways you can support us is just by not complaining about the ads. So that should uh, kind of put that one to bed. But I wanted to make sure I address that because I've had several comments on that. All right, next question here. What are your thoughts on Tulsi Gabbard? Would you support her if she ran for president? Okay, so here's the thing about Tulsi Gabbard. So she used to be a congressperson, a Democratic congressperson from Hawaii, but you know, the last time she didn't run for re-election, so she's kind of just out there on her own. I'm not exactly sure what she's doing. But the thing about it is, is I constantly get asked about Tulsi Gabbard. Like, oh, you know, whenever she was on Joe Rogan's podcast with Jocko Willing, you know, I had a bunch of people send that to me. He's like, what do you think? She seems amazing and all that. And the the thing about it is, is here's the reality. Okay, so there's a lot I can say about Tulsi Gabbard. Okay, the reality is, is that she's a Democrat. Okay, 
And so, you know, for some of you listening to the show, you're a Democrat and you're like, so what's the problem? But but the thing is, is it's conservatives and Republicans that are always asking me about Tulsi Gabbard. It's not Democrats. It, it's never been a Democrat, actually. She is a Democrat. But for whatever reason, conservatives and Republicans alike are just entranced with her or by her because she's pretty, you know, she's in shape. She's friends with Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink. And, you know, every now and then she has these random fits of reasonableness where she sounds entirely reasonable. Like she came out after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and said, yeah, they got it exactly right. He should have never even been charged, which is the God's honest truth. That kid should have never been on trial for his life. And so people will say that. And then, you know, she'll appear on Fox News and it's like, oh my gosh, what if she became a Republican and all of a sudden ran for our side? Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe we could do a ticket where she's on one side and Dan Crenshaw and they could come together and be this great harmonious thing. But there's a reality here. So here's your wet blanket on Tulsi Gabbard. So to any conservatives and uh, Republicans out there listening to this, and I know there's a lot of you, here are the things that she's on the record about, right? So let's talk about things that are important to most of the listeners. And this is according to Politico. So I'm just going to run down this list, okay? And she's got, you know, speeches and she's got voting records that corroborate everything that I'm about to say in terms of her record. So let's just run down the list. She wants few, if any, limits on abortion. She supports a ban on quote-unquote assault weapons, even though she probably can't define that. She supports universal universal background checks, which, you know, is usually like a, a Trojan horse for something else when it comes to the Second Amendment stuff. She thinks that the gun show loophole is a real thing. And so for any of you guys, you know, there's a lot of dummies that think that you can just go, you know, bypass a gun store, go to a gun show and, you know, buy a firearm from a, you know, federally licensed dealer and do it without doing a background check, which is not how it happens at all, right? If you buy it from some guy in the parking lot at the gun show, that's an illegal sale for the most part in most states. So she thinks that the gun show loophole is an actual thing. She wants to slash the defense budget. She doesn't want our troops around the world. She wants our troops to come home. She basically doesn't want us to have any outposts. She wants to abolish the death penalty. And if you want my thoughts on the death penalty, go back to episode 290 or 259 of this podcast, I believe it was 259. She also wants to raise uh, the minimum wage to $15 an hour. She thinks that college should be free. She wants to shut down existing nuclear power reactors. She's an advocate of Medicare for all, and she wants to legalize all quote unquote dreamers here in the United States. What of any of that that I just said seems vaguely Republican or conservative? Okay. So hopefully just running down that list and I'll, I'll try to remember to put the political thing in the show notes because I kind of coalesced all that information together. But guys, enough with the Tulsi Gabbard stuff. And, and to just to be honest, as a side note, I find her deeply uninteresting. I think I've said that on this podcast before, you know, when she was on Jocko's show, when she was on the Joe Rogan experience a couple of times, I, I feel myself getting incredibly bored listening to her. Like she, again, she's reasonable, but then she just kind of throws in these things that don't make a lot of sense. It's kind of like Barack Obama. Like how did Barack Obama, you know, basically spend two years in the United States Senate and then become the president for eight years? It's because he didn't really say a whole lot of things specifically. He talked in these grandiose terms, hope and change and forward and all this other stuff. And that's how he got elected. She's kind of like that and that she says some stuff, but then she doesn't say a lot all at the same time. It's like she says a lot of words, but she's not really meaning anything. So those are kind of my overall thoughts on Tulsi Gabbard. All right, next question here. How do you think the Supreme Court of the United States will rule on the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case? Uh, so that's people asking. I know some of you are surprised that I haven't done in a whole episode so far. This is the Mississippi late-term abortion ban, like the late-term abortion law, essentially. So they just heard oral arguments uh, within the last few weeks. I'm not sure when this will be released to you, but it's probably been about two weeks uh, from the release of this episode two weeks ago. Um we're likely not going to get a result announced until early 2020. Um, and in terms of how the court will rule, it is it is so complicated. It's really, really hard to say. And some people think it's just hard to say because we don't know how people are going to vote. It's not just that. It's what exactly are they going to rule on? That That's the hard thing. Okay. So it's it might uphold. They might rule on whether or not they should uphold the Mississippi abortion law. Uh, they might rule on getting rid of the viability standard that we got from Planned Parenthood versus Casey back in the early 90s. They might rule uh, on on everything about in terms of abortion, when it should be federally legal. And it might completely go all the way up to whether or not we should overturn Roe v. Wade. Right. So there, there's a lot of things on the table. It's not very straightforward. It's kind of hard to guess where all the people are going to lie. 
But I think it's pretty clear who the guaranteed no votes on any changes to abortion laws will be and the guaranteed yes votes will be. So the guaranteed no votes are Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer. Those people are varying levels of zealots for the pro-choice clause, otherwise known as the pro-abortion, pro-baby murder cause. And so there's no way they are going to vote in the affirmative for any restriction on current abortion law whatsoever. Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer will not do that. Now, here are the two people, unfortunately it's only two, that I think are guaranteed to vote to repeal everything up to Roe v. Wade. Okay, so wherever we like we fall on this, they're going to go all the way up to getting rid of Roe v. Wade. And that's Thomas and Alito. Okay, so Thomas is my favorite justice. You know, if you pick your favorite, he's my favorite one. Like, I I think he's been so consistent on this issue. I really like his opinions. He's fairly underrated as a justice, even in conservative circles. But I think Thomas and Alito are yeses. So that leaves four justices that we don't exactly know how they're going to vote on any of these issues. And so that's Amy Coney Barrett, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Roberts. Now, if I were to guess right now, I think the easiest one to put somewhere, I would put Roberts in the no category. I don't think you can depend on Justice Roberts to do anything that's going to change, uh, you know, fundamentally what's going on in the United States because he's so obsessed with, you know, the jurisprudence history of kind of what the Supreme Court's doing. And, you know, he's voted on the the liberal side of a lot of issues that you didn't think that he would since he was, you know, basically brought up by George W. Bush. So I think Roberts would join Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer. So that's four. So that leaves three. It's ACB, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. Um, of those three, the ones that I think would join Thomas and Alito, the one that I think is most likely, um, you know, to be honest, I was going to say Gorsuch, but I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Gorsuch uh, voted on the side of this uh, transgender law uh, within the last year. Kavanaugh, I don't think is going to be nearly as conservative and nearly as anti-abortion, I think, as people would have hoped. Uh, I, I think, you know, as as time goes on, we're going to see that to be more and more the case. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett, ACB, is that's going to be a little different as well. I'm not sure. And for some of you that have listened to this podcast for a while, you know, I was advocating for Amy Coney Barrett to be nominated before Gorsuch was. And I believe I said so on this show. And I believe I talked about, you know, her her hearings and how I was so excited. And I thought she was going to be a guaranteed vote to eventually get rid of Roe v. Wade. But I'm not quite so sure. I, I need to see more decisions from her before I can feel confident that she would do that. So if I had to go right now, and again, it's, we don't know exactly what we're going for. I'm going to say Roberts joins the rest of the Democrat appointed folks. Uh, Gorsuch maybe goes. um with Thomas and Alito, the the conservative justices, and then ACB and Kavanaugh maybe are our, our coin flip. So I'm not really sure how that's going to break down. Again, we've got several more months to think about it and go through it. And then by the summer, we're going to have a lot to uh, talk about whenever the decision does come down. But the thing is, is if I had to kind of handicap it right now, my thoughts are that pro-lifers will get something, but not everything. I am very, very pessimistic about the fact that Roe v. Wade is going to be completely overturned. And again, just a reminder, that doesn't mean abortion all of a sudden becomes federally illegal in the United States. All that means is that, you know, the decision as to what you should do with abortion goes back to the states. I think almost immediately you'll have close to a couple of dozen states that eradicate abortion outright. You know, I, I say almost immediately, you know, that'll be the immediate goal for a lot of those. Um, but I, I just, for whatever reason, I don't see that happening. And I'm, I'm more pessimistic in my personality. But the thing I would ask to people that would, you know, basically fight against that and we can't have that is is getting everything still is not getting everything still a good thing i guess would be the way of saying it because i don't think we're going to get everything i don't think we're going to get you know roe v wade completely overturned but is getting something better than getting nothing and obviously I, I would agree that i think getting something would be better than getting nothing here but you know i would love more than anything else as you guys know for uh, roe v wade to be overturned but i'm just not so sure that's going to happen all right next question here what do you think is going on with the whole the whole Joel Osteen money in the walls situation? So this is an interesting one. When my buddy sent this to me, I could not believe this wasn't from the Babylon Bee. So on uh, November the 10th of this year, a plumber was working in Joel Osteen's bathroom at his his office, I guess, in his church there in Houston at Lakewood Church. And the plumber, I guess he was moving some tile and then he was about to take the toilet off and he kind of moved some insulation around. And when he moved the insulation... He found nearly 500 envelopes full of cash, checks, money orders, basically 
money, right? So it just all this money just fell out of the wall. So he immediately got with uh, whoever the maintenance person on staff was. And then I guess what they, they got with the Houston PD and Houston PD says that this cash might, they don't know for sure, but might be related to a cold case from 2014 where like $600,000 was reported stolen from the church and all those types of things. So a lot of people are kind of thinking about, and certainly in my circles have thought about this as well. It's like, okay, what could this be? Like, like what exactly could this be? Like, it's just a weird situation to to know exactly. And I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of it. I think we'll get the initial headline and never hear any follow-up. There's a chance it's insurance fraud, right? Because, you know, they reported this and I'm sure they have some sort of an insurance policy in place at their church if somebody were to steal something, right? So maybe this is insurance fraud. Like maybe that's possible. Olstein's maybe involved, maybe he's not. Maybe it's a disgruntled former employee. Like that was one thing that one of uh, my guys in my foxhole said is like, you know, it sounds like almost like a disgruntled employee. Like maybe they were dealing with the cash and, you know, every week they took one envelope and put it in the wall. And then the next week they took another envelope and put it in the wall. But part of me is like, well, how'd you get it in the wall to begin with? Because it would almost make sense that you stuck it in the wall and then you put up the drywall and, you know, <laughs> textured over it and painted over it and all those types of things. So I mean, were they dropping it in from, you know, above or something like that? It's so weird. But, but here's the other thing. And I don't really want to talk about this very much because it's basically all conjecture. But Joel Osteen is a weirdo. We know that. Like, obviously, he's a, you know, he's a big time prosperity gospel guy. This is not a guy that you should be following. You should not be listening to his podcast. You should not be reading unless you're trying to do research on, you know, people that are false prophets or something like that. But the dude is an absolute weirdo. He's a space cadet. Maybe he likes storing cash. Maybe he likes going, you know, Bill Burr's character in, uh, you know, Breaking Bad and he likes to just lay down on a bed of cash. Like, I don't know, but would anything surprise you with Joel Osteen? I mean, I mean like anything at all. So not terribly surprised that this uh, came about, but you know, here we are, I guess. All right. So now we're getting into apparently a sports section because I have a cross here on the top. It says sports section. So apparently you guys had a lot of sports questions. So let's go and get into the first one here. What do you think of the proposed rule changes for Major League Baseball? Okay. um, Well, as of the recording of this, uh, there's currently a lockout between the players and the owners and people are like, oh, you know, eat the rich, screw the owners or all the players are being babies. You know, at the as of the recording of this, there's nothing take, you know, that's happened so far. But I assume that we will have a 2022 season. But there are a lot of things that are part of the negotiations and there's a lot of different rule changes. So I'm going to kind of go down this list here and kind of give you my thoughts. One of the rule changes is a proposed 14 team playoffs where there are 30 major league baseball teams and they're proposing seven teams from each league, the national league and American league to, to end up going to the playoffs. Just outright, I hate this idea. I absolutely hate it. One of the things I loved forever before this new wild card era is that there would be the three division winners in each league and one wild card team from each league, right? So there's basically a quarterfinal. That goes down to a a semifinal that goes down to a final, which is the World Series. And so out of the 30 teams, only eight teams made it. And so with these eight teams, it's like. It's elite, I guess, Uh, you know, I'm kind of having trouble with my words here, but it's it's those are the elite teams, right? I always looked at the NHL and the NBA. It's like, man, there's so many teams that go to the playoffs, 16 teams in the NBA go into the playoff system. It's like you could be absolutely dog crap. You could be absolutely terrible and make it into the postseason. I always just thought that that was that was a little bit odd. So I love the exclusivity of the playoffs. And then they added the extra wild card game. So there were two wild card teams from each league, which, you know, it's a one game playoff. You're in you might be it like this year with the Dodgers and Cardinals there was like 12 games difference between those two teams so it was absolutely ridiculous that the Dodgers even had to play in that so no in general I don't like the expanded playoffs you know it kind of weakens the whole thing and, and you know I feel like the best team has the chance of winning when there's eight teams that are in the playoffs but you know this is kind of the world we're in another one that they talk about is universal DH I'm a National League guy, but I hate the fact that I have to watch pitchers hit. I'm a huge fan of the Universal DH. It's going to extend the careers of some guys, uh, some guys that would never sign with a National League team because they're like, well, eventually I want to be a DH. I can't play, you know, corner outfield or third base every single day. I think you're going to get more uh, better players that are signing with National League teams because they have the DH. I'm full for, I'm all on for that. Uh, seven inning double headers. So you've seen that, you know, you saw that in the last couple of years where if you have a double header, it's a seven inning game in the afternoon and then a seven inning game in the evening. I want to say I like that, but that's not baseball. Junior high and high school baseball is seven innings. Okay. This is the professionals, right? This is the major leagues, right? Seven inning double header. It starts all these stupid debates like, hey, this guy threw a no hitter over seven innings. I think a Madison Bumgarner did that for Arizona. And it's like, is this a no hitter? It's like, well, no. 
unless if you now want to call it a no hitter, then you need to go back in time to all the hundreds of guys that got through seven innings, either perfect or with no hits and go ahead and give them, uh, give them credit for that, even though it's after the fact and who freaking cares at this point. So I don't really like the seven inning double headers. Uh, there's another thing that they're doing, which is maybe one of the worst things that I've heard is that, uh, where a runner in extra innings, you start the inning off with a runner on second base. So when you're coming up to hit in the top of the 10th, they put a runner on second base to start the inning, right? So you're starting with a runner in scoring position. I don't like this because it's like, why do you need that? You need to score the run. You need to manufacture the run, whether you launch it in the seats with for a solo shot or, you know, you get the guy on base, move him over and kind of get him around. I mean, honestly, I think I said this in my interview with Mark Appel. Why not start the guy in between third base and home plate and say he can't be picked off, right? If you're trying to ensure that they're scoring in extra innings, do that. Just have the guy sit there, bring a lazy boy out there and have him just kind of sit there and relax until the ball gets hit into play. And then he doesn't even have to go back to third to tag up on a fly ball. He can just kind of walk home if somebody hits the ball in fair territory. Like we can get really ridiculous with this. So no, I don't like that at all. And the last one here is the banning of infield shifts. I actually like this one. Okay. So if you guys have been paying attention to baseball, you will see where every fielder, every infielder will go to one side of second base, right? And well, you know, it's usually going to happen with, you know, a pull hitter that's a lefty or something like that. But anyway, you're going to have one guy left on the left side of the infield and everybody else on the right side. One guy kind of playing Rover out there in in, uh, the outfield and all that. And it's leading to these horribly boring innings, right? Where you have these guys where it should be a base hit, but he hits it right into the shift. I'm okay with defensive shifts. If a guy is a pool hitter and you shift your outfield and infield a little bit to to regard that, I think that that's okay. But having a fielder literally cross the center line, there's not an actual center line in baseball, but cross over the line, you know, that basically goes from home plate to, you know, the middle of center field wall and have them cross over to the other side. It's just like, geez, man, like I know to a degree it's like, hey, as a hitter, as a professional hitter, you should know how to hit it beyond that. But uh, I'm just not a huge fan of it. I'm okay with them shifting a little bit, but these major shifts are just ridiculous. All right, we got some UFC questions here. So uh, here's the first one. What UFC fights do you want to see in 2021? Okay, so there's a lot of fights that I want to see. A lot of them are kind of, uh, I guess, in the same division, but some that kind of come off the top of my head or came off the top of my head when I was looking at this initially. Uh, Hamzat Chemaev versus either Kamaru Usman or Colby Covington. So Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington, those are the two best 170-pounders on the planet, the two best welterweights on the planet. They're 1A and 1B, as we've seen in their their two fights that were razor close. But Hamzat Chemaev, he's the 11th-ranked guy right now. He's the guy that nobody wants to fight. Now, subsequently, he hasn't fought anybody, anybody that's any good, but he's basically, I don't think he's had a strike landed on him in the last two years. Think about that. Not not a strike landed on him in two years. He takes people down and he absolutely smashes them. But Kamaru Usman and Colby Cummington are really, really good wrestlers, right? So we can see if they could stop his takedown. We haven't seen a lot of Hamzat Jemayev on his feet, but that would be one I would like to see him versus either Usman or Cummington. Uh, then I also want to see Colby Cummington versus Jorge Masvidal, and that's the fight that I think is most likely to happen of all these that are kind of on my list here. Uh, Colby Cummington and Jorge Masvidal used to be teammates. They don't like each other right now. They've said so in public. You know, Colby Cummington had to leave his gym. But here's the deal. Kobe Covington and Jorge Masvidal are complete different levels. Jorge Masvidal is a glorified journeyman, right? He had a good stretch of a couple of years. He knocked out a couple of guys. He had that great, you know, uh, knockout of Ben Askren, all those different things. But he is not an elite level fighter. He's just not. And I know some people are Jorge fans. are like, oh, but look what he did here and look what he did there. The reason why he looks so bad against Kamaru Usman is because he's just not that good. Colby Covington could be the champion right now, if not for Kamaru Usman. So I think they'll do the ultimate fighter with those two, you know, kind of make it a big deal. But Colby Covington should have a very easy time of beating up Jorge Masvidal. I'd also like to see TJ Dillashaw versus Peter Yan. Uh, so here's the thing. Peter Yan, he is the actual champion of that division. Don't give me that Al Jermaine Sterling, Sterling junk. But TJ Dillashaw beat uh, Corey Sanhagen, and in, he hurt his knee in the process. So Corey Sanhagen ended up getting the shot at Peter Yan for the actual title. But TJ Dillashaw is the second best person in that division based on rankings. And he might be the best person in that weight class, you know, regardless. And so I want to see that fight. Another one that's kind of random is Giga Chikadze versus Yair Rodriguez at 145. So if you haven't heard of it's it's either Giga or Giga Chikadze. This guy is a mainly kind of kickboxing karate type fighter. And he it's like watching a video game, seeing the types of strikes he's landing on people. And Yair Rodriguez is the same way. He just had an amazing fight against Max Holloway where he beat the brakes off Max Holloway for different parts of that fight, but ended up just getting worn down over time. But I think that would be like a street fighter type fight between those two guys. And the last one I'll bring up is Justin Gaethje versus the winner of uh, Poirier or Oliveira. 
So Poirier and Oliveira are fighting uh, later on this month. Actually, by the time you you hear this, may have already fought. Uh, but the winner of that should go against Justin Gaethje. You know, Justin Gaethje lost against uh, Habib Nurmagomedov uh, for the 155 title, the lightweight title, uh, about a year ago, whenever Habib retired after the fight or whatever. But I want to see Justin Gaethje get a shot at that title again. I think that he eventually will be the champion, but it'll uh, be fighting against Oliveira or Poirier. Okay, so another UFC-related question here. Should John Jones be banned from fighting? Uh, so for those of you that don't know, John Jones, who has you know relinquished the light heavyweight title and is going up to heavyweight, you know we see all these things about he's posting on Instagram, look how big he is, look how swole he's getting and all those different things. Well, a few months back, it seems like he beat up his... I don't know. I guess it's his fiance. It's either his girlfriend or fiance, but police were called, you know, John Jones was arrested for domestic assault. Uh, she either like, you know, when the police got there, she was so, so afraid she didn't want to press charges or something like that. But for all intents and purposes, unless somebody else can show me something different, he struck his fiance, right? You know, and his kids were there with him. He came to Vegas for the Hall of Fame ceremony. Him and his fight between Alexander Gustafson was put into the UFC Hall of Fame. And he wasn't in Vegas for 24 hours before he got into serious trouble. I just don't know what else you need to see with this guy. Again, he's potentially the most talented fighter of all time. Maybe the best natural, naturally gifted fighter in the history of mixed martial arts, mixed martial arts, not just the UFC. But who really is desperate to watch him fight now, knowing what we know about him, right? He's just been a horrible person, done these awful things, potentially popped for steroids at different times, you know, whether you believe the picogram thing or not. But I'm just not interested in supporting John Jones in any way, shape, or form. Not with my attention, not with my dollars, certainly for pay-per-view. And to the UFC, like, I don't really understand what the, the big deal for them would be to get rid of him, right? You maybe keep him under contract, but don't sign him to a fight. I don't know if you can actually do that. But for the most part, he's not a big pay-per-view draw. And for those of you that don't understand, he's never had a, been on a pay-per-view or been the headliner on a pay-per-view that got anywhere close to a million pay-per-view buys. Like, that's Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, George St. Pierre, Brock Lesnar territory. He's never even sniffed that, even when he was fighting Daniel Cormier, right? Go look at the numbers for the pay-per-views. So I don't see a tremendous amount of upside by keeping this piece of crap around. So there's that. Uh, then the last one here on the UFC stuff is any bold predictions for 2022? So 2022, um, well, let's see, bold predictions. I guess you can say bold predictions, and anytime time, I think earlier I said fights I would want to see in 2021, I guess I meant 2022, so sorry about that, but bold predictions for 2022, I guess one would be Hamzat Chemaev actually becoming the welterweight champion by year's end, right? Again, he's ranked 11th right now, so if he could get a fight in, you know, January, February, he could fight again, you know, sometime, you know, summer around uh, International Fight Week, maybe by the end of the year he's fighting for the title. Maybe he's fighting Kamaru Usman. Maybe he's fighting, you know, Colby Covington. Maybe he's fighting somebody else at 170. But there's there's a decent chance that he gets a title shot this year because if he continues to destroy people at 170 the way he has, you can't deny him a title shot. Uh, another bold prediction, I guess, would be Alexander Volkanovsky, who's a 145-pound champion. He's already beat Max Holloway twice. There's no, no, no one else for Max Holloway to fight at 145 except for Alexander Volkanovsky, okay? He just uh, destroyed Brian Ortega. You know, it was a great fight, but he ended up, you know, finishing him I think that Alexander Volkanovsky beats Max Holloway for a third time at 145, and we see Max Holloway go to 155 lightweight full-time. So that would be a bold prediction there. And then also, I guess, uh, since I don't actually believe that the UFC is going to get rid of John Jones, here's a bold prediction, and this is a prediction that I hope comes true if they do let John Jones fight. I hope he gets sent to the moon by Francis Ngannou. So I know Francis Ngannou has to fight Cyril Ghosn in January, and Cyril Ghosn is basically a heavyweight that moves like a lightweight, so that's going to be a problem for Francis Ngannou. But I hope that they do get Francis Ngannou and John Jones in there, and I don't care how big John Jones is and how much he can deadlift. Francis Ngannou is a monster, and he has an atomic bomb attached to his right wrist, and uh, I hope he hits John Jones right in the chin with it and sends him into orbit. So uh, next question here, another sports-related uh, sports question, is what are your thoughts on the Lincoln-Riley situation at OU? So for those of you that don't follow this thing because you have other things to do with your time, uh, now the University of Oklahoma had a coach for several years, I think four or five years. His name was Lincoln Riley. He came into, you know, after Bob Stoops, who was a longtime coach of OU and all these different things, lots of, you know, I guess lots of expectations on him, went to the college football playoff a couple of times, got smoked a couple of times, uh, you know, wins the Big 12, you know, basically keeping OU relevant. Well, after they lost the Bedlam game this year, after they lost Oklahoma State, Lincoln Riley, within 24 hours, it was announced that he was going to be the new head coach at USC, the uh, University of Southern California. And I mean, you would have thought that he had raped somebody and cut their head off and rolled it down the hallway. People just talked about this guy as if he was Satan for, for an entire week. I mean, going on Facebook here in Oklahoma was absolutely ridiculous there for a while. But this is what I will say. 
His situation and people's reaction is similar to when Kevin Durant decided to leave the Oklahoma City Thunder and go to the Golden State Warriors, which I was, you know, really displeased with. Also, people pointed out, well, weren't aren't you still mad at Albert Pujols for not resigning with the Cardinals? And, and you know, a lot of that's true. You know, you you get you know you get a guy and you think he's your possession and you get mad when he makes a decision for himself and his family that does not involve your team, right? But I will say this: with the Kevin Durant situation and with the Albert Pujols situation. It wasn't as if they left right after the last game of the season, right? There, there's one game left. There's a bowl game for OU. And again, you know, people still hadn't cooled off in Stillwater from beating OU and Bedlam the way that they did. And he's already off to USC. He's on a private flight going out there to start recruiting. And since then, a bunch of kids that have been recruited to go to OU and had committed to OU have decommitted. They've either gone to USC or one, you know, went to Texas A&M. But the thing about it is, is, Kevin Durant, there was several weeks, if not months, in between, you know, the Thunder losing in the Western Conference Finals to the Golden State Warriors before he went to the Golden State Warriors. You know, Albert Pujols was coming off of a World Series win in 2011 before he decided to sign with the Angels, doing basically what he said he wouldn't do, which is signing for three or four more million dollars a year uh, to not be a Cardinal kind of a thing. But the thing about it is, is I don't really care. I honestly don't really care. They've hired Brent Venables, the the defensive coordinator for Clemson. He seems like a good coach. No one plays any defense in the Big 12, so it might be a good idea for you know a defensive coach to come in there and do things. OU is about to go to the SEC with Texas. Who knows? Who the heck knows? I don't really care, but I do think it's funny that all these grown men are crying about another grown man making a decision. So that's funny. Another one here in the college football realm. Who do you think will win the college football playoff this year? So as it was just announced uh, not uh, not too long ago, Alabama, Michigan, Georgia, and Cincinnati in that order. Those are the four college football playoff teams. All those semifinal, uh, those two semifinal games are going to happen on New Year's Eve. Uh, I mean, the way Bama looked against Georgia, I, I don't see how Cincinnati beats Alabama. Maybe they surprise them early in that game, but Alabama over an entire game, over four quarters, just way too good of a team. I think Bama beats Cincinnati. And then uh, I think a lot of people are going to pick Georgia to beat Michigan, but I'm going to do the exact opposite. I think Alabama popped the Georgia bubble. When Alabama went to the SEC title game and just from, from wire to wire destroyed Georgia, right? I mean, really about... Towards the end of the first quarter, like this, this game was going nowhere for Georgia. I think that popped their bubble where they thought we're the supreme team this year. And I think I've even said that before. Like I think Georgia's a good team, and then everyone else is just okay. But we uh, we were proven wrong. Bama's way better than we thought, and Georgia's maybe wasn't as good as we thought, or maybe it was just a bad game. But I think Michigan's defense has enough, uh, and their offense has enough to kind of sneak by Georgia. Even though I think that will end up being an upset pick. I got Bama and Michigan playing each other for the title, but I think Bama wins again. It's kind of hard to pick against Alabama right now. Maybe if you're a Michigan alum, you're going to pick them. I think Bama wins their seventh national title, which would be Nick Saban's eighth overall and seventh. Sorry, it would be Saban's seventh at Alabama, but his eighth overall because he won one with. LSU. Absolutely unreal. He's the greatest coach of any sport for for any reason. The fact that there's this many teams in college uh, football and there's this many players to go around and he plays in the SEC. The fact that he has won six national titles at Alabama, seven in the SEC as of right now, and maybe eventually eight and, and counting on from there is just incredible. So I got Bama winning. All right, next question here. Why do you think the Women's Tennis Association is standing up against China, but the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is not? So I love this question. So the person they're talking about, if you aren't aware, is a women's tennis player named Peng Shui. I believe is how you say her last name, but it's S-H-U-A-I, so Peng Shui. Uh, so apparently she suggested or accused a member of the, the political ruling class of China, I forget exactly what they would be called, of sexual assault. So she claims that this man sexually assaulted her as as his wife was actually watching at the door to make sure nobody would come through and see what was happening. So she talked about that publicly and then all of a sudden she disappeared. Right. And so the WTA, the women's Tennis association is like, Hey, what's going on here? Right. And so then there were some statements that were supposedly released from Peng Shui saying she was okay. And there were some videos of her saying that she was okay. But the WTA people from the WTA was like, no, 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 we need to speak with her. We need to. Okay. And basically the Chinese communist party had no reason to comply with that. And so they didn't. So the WTA said, until we get a full investigation as to whether or not Peng Shui is okay and whether or not she was actually sexually assaulted, we're going to pull all of our events from China. Okay. And the Chinese government makes a lot of money. The Chinese country, they make a lot of money off these tournaments. And so does the WTA. And they said, we don't care. Right. 
one of our own is potentially in danger right now and has been, you know, potentially sexually assaulted. And we need to make sure that this gets taken care of. And a lot of prominent uh, women's tennis players, including Serena Williams, you know, to her credit, basically called them out and said, hey, this is BS. Like, we need to know where Peng Shui is and we need to know where she is right now. And the whole time, like the, the irony was so, so unbelievably, you know, heavy at the moment because the NBA is doing everything they can. And I guess you could say Hollywood as well, even though that's not technically sports, but they're doing everything they can to not piss off the Chinese Communist Party. Right. They want to do everything they can to kowtow to them and say, OK, we'll do what you want. We'll take these scenes out of movies. You know, we won't let people say these things on the court. And, you know, we'll call, you know, general managers for the use of rockets, you know, uninformed if they say if they bring up anything about the Uyghurs and all those different people in China. You know, we'll talk about Black Lives Matter, but we won't talk about the Muslim lives that apparently don't matter in China. You know, all those different things, because the WTA, they're not doing any of that. They're not going the woke thing. And, and as the last I checked. The WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, is not nearly as big as the NBA or Hollywood is. They don't make nearly as much money. And they said, no, we don't care. This is a huge chunk of our business, not doing any tournaments in China. We don't care. So uh, in terms of why, the, the, I guess the question that you asked was, why do I think the Women's Tennis Association is standing up against China? I think it's because they assume that this is the right thing to do. That this is one of their own and they need to protect their own because what precedent does it set? I mean, what standard does it set for the future? If you're a, a non-American or even an American tennis player that goes through a situation like this and even the WTA, the organization that you represent and technically work for, if they don't come and have your back, if they don't come to your aid. So, you know, bravo to the Women's Tennis Association. I'm glad that you had the balls to do this. All right, next question here, another sports question. Do you support the new NIL regulations with the NCAA? I thought you were opposed to players being paid while playing sports in college. Okay, so NIL, I think that's name, image, likeness. Okay, so if I have that right. So starting with this uh, school year, I guess this would have been the fall of 2021, players can now uh, basically sell their image and likeness and make money off of it. So they can get sponsorships and all these different things. So we've seen some some big sponsorships. There are kids that are basically not even played a down yet for football football and yet they're already making over a million dollars. You know, I saw something the other day where there's something called like uh, horns with hearts or something, I think is what it's called, but it's for any offensive lineman. That's a scholarship athlete at the university of Texas. They're going to get paid $50,000 a year just for basically, you know, saying nice things about their organization and doing a few events throughout the year. So these kids are going to be getting paid. But to be clear, if you go back to where I've talked about this before, because I have been asked about this on a previous uh, thing, I have always been against these players being paid by the schools. But I'm a, I'm a capitalist. So if the regulations are such that a private business can support a player that they like or or they like what they're doing or something like that, I'm all for that. Like that kid who was like the backup fullback that caught the two-point conversion for the University of Kansas against Texas earlier this year, like he got supported by Applebee's. So I guess he's getting like free Applebee's for life or something like that. I'm I'm super excited for that kid. The point always was is that people just assume that every single athletic department at every single university in the United States is flush with cash and they're just not. Again, I say this all the time. Typically, the only sports that make money are football and men's basketball. There are a few exceptions, like maybe Baylor women's basketball. Maybe there's, you know, OSU uh, wrestling. Maybe there's like Louisville baseball. Like there's some random programs that actually make money. But for the most part, these programs don't make any money at all. They operate in the negative, right? The only things that operate in the black are football and college basketball, men's college basketball. And so there wasn't just going to be money uh, to pay these people. And again, there was no way to do it equitably, right? No way to distribute it evenly because do you pay the starting quarterback that's going to maybe win the Heisman Trophy this year the same as you would do, you know, the backup catcher for the softball team, right? How do you do this in an equitable fashion in a way that's actually equal? I know a lot of people are like, oh, equity, you can't say that. But you, you know exactly what I mean in terms of this context. The one thing I will say that I don't think anybody is talking about is how, you know, everyone talks about how these players, as soon as they sign that NFL deal, as soon as they find that, sign that first NBA deal, or as soon as they get drafted into baseball, you know, all these people come out of the woodwork and start bothering them. Cousins they never knew and never met are asking them for money. Hey, can you buy me a car? Hey, my, my girl needs to go to private school, like whatever the, the thing is, right? And now you're having that being done to 18, 19 year olds. There's going to maybe be some bad downstream consequences of that right? Because just because you're making a little money to go to school, that doesn't mean that you're going to be a pro for, for almost 100% of these kids. They're not going to go pro in their actual sport. So there's going to be some downstream consequences. The other thing is, is I think attractive female college athletes are going to be severely taken advantage of. Now, 
The argument immediately is that, hey, they're 18, they can make their own decisions. But I've seen some ads pop up on Twitter. You know, I certainly did not seek these things out, but you have like, a college gymnast or a college softball player or something like that. And they're being sponsored by like a, a risque lingerie or, or underwear company. It's like, how could this be bad? Right. Grown men sexualizing these young kids that are now, you know, that are playing some sort of sport. Right. Um, so I think there's going to be some issues there. Um, I, and I thought about this as well. Like as soon as this was announced, I was like, what if only fans wanted to like set up or like, what if one of these girls or our guys, I guess, wanted to set up an only fans account where basically they're getting paid to do porn by private subscribers. Right. Is the NCAA going to get a piece of that? Are they going to be okay with that? I don't think that this is just straight across the board and net positive, but overall, I am glad that these kids can make money for something that they're doing and they're not going to be actually paid by the school or the athletic program, which is not always going to be making money. Okay. Uh, looks like we got the last uh, sports question for the day and this, <laughs> this one will probably be pretty short, but it's how is your newly acquired NHL fandom going? So as I've announced earlier before, I think I did this on the last Q&A podcast. I've decided because the NFL and the NBA suck and I can't kneel, you know, with my fist in the air for three hours while I watch watching the NBA game, I decided to be a National Hockey League fan, right? And through a lot of, you know, prayerful consideration, I ended up choosing the Boston Bruins because I would love to go to Boston. I love the city of Boston. I'd love to go there to actually watch a Bruins game. They're one of the original six. They've won like one title in the last 30 or 40 years. So it's not like jumping on the bandwagon. You know, in terms of how that's going, as of right now, for the 2021-2022 season, I have not sat down and watched an entire hockey game from beginning to end. I've caught little pieces of games here or there. You know, TNT has, uh, you know, hockey now, so I'm watching a little bit of that. You know, my Bruins, I still can't name more than like two guys on the team, but, you know, gosh darn it, they got a winning record, but they're still in the middle of the pack. But there's, you know, there's a lot of season left, right? You know, there, there's a lot of a lot of ice that's still melted. So, gosh darn it, if I'm not the biggest Bruins fan in the world, you can't tell me who is. So I'm all about it. We're going for it. We're winning the Stanley Cup this year. All right, so that wraps up all the sports questions. Let's get back into some other questions here. Next one. What are your thoughts on the recent uh, the recent school shooting in Michigan? I figured you would have done an entire episode on it by now. Okay, so, you know, I guess fair play. Uh, there have been other subjects that have come up that I had already kind of either recorded or gotten out there, but I'm glad we can kind of talk about it right here. But in Oxford High School in Michigan, this was a few weeks ago, uh, there was a student who's, who I won't mention their name, but he decided to go on a shooting rampage. He had a handgun and he shot and killed four of his classmates. Um, I think there are others that are injured right now, but I don't think they're in critical condition before those kids died. Um, so in terms of the entire situation, you know, a lot of other people are covering this and I haven't paid uh, too terribly much attention to the situation, but I do know that both of his parents have been indicted on manslaughter charges. It was a little bit weird that they weren't even in custody before these charges were announced, right? So it was like, oh, we're, we have a manhunt that we're trying to find these people. It doesn't seem like they were actually trying to get away. I mean, they were, they were found pretty easily, so it didn't seem like they were trying to evade arrest, but it looks like uh, at the day of the shooting, um, a teacher, you know, saw that he had been scribbling on a page that, you know, he can't make the voices stop. And he was drawing like these, you know, bloody deadly drawings. And he was looking up ammo on his phone, you know, and uh, his mom sent him a text saying, you know, Hey, I just got a call saying you were looking at ammo, LOL. Like, you know, don't get caught looking at ammo at school, blah, blah, blah. But then they actually brought the parents up to school the day of the shooting and said, Hey, you know, you have to get this kid in counseling within the next 48 hours, you know, those types of things. But the parents refused to take him home with them. So I guess I don't really understand why the, the, school could not force that kid to leave the premises, but neither his parents nor the school administrators checked this kid's backpack or checked his locker or anything like that. Um, because you know, those parents actually bought him a pistol, bought him a, a six hour firearm on black Friday. And the kid like took pictures with it and he was bragging with it. And nobody thought to, to try to track down the SIG to fi figure out where the firearm is. And, you know, the kid goes back to school and, you know, he goes into his, his backpack, pulls out the gun, kills four people. Um, tragic situation uh, to say the least um there's not a there's not a law on the books that would have prevented this from happening uh so a lot of people are already automatically going for the gun grab type of thing but there's not something that would have prevented this this kid you know it was negligence by the parents i don't know that they're ne necessarily negligent negligent to the point of manslaughter but potentially they are you know we'll see that as, as time goes on but you know lots also been made about this guy named tate meyer so he's a 16 year old football player from oxford high school that was killed uh he actually charged the gunman trying to stop it uh he took a, a bullet or two 
he died in a police cruiser on the way to the hospital. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of places, a lot of people on Twitter and on, on the news and even, you know, the Detroit Lions and the Michigan Wolverines, like they're paying tribute to this kid, uh, an absolute sheepdog of a kid. You know, as soon as the bullet started flying, his idea was to run towards danger as opposed to running away from it. Uh, there's no telling how many lives he potentially saved while he was, you know, in the fracas with the gunman. So, uh, you know, just a, a totally tragic thing that that kid has passed away. I feel so unbelievably bad for his parents. But yeah, it's it's a horrible situation. There's not much more I can say about it, really. Um, for all of us out here that are Christians, I think it'd be great to pray for these family members. And people are like, oh, are you just going to send them thoughts and prayers? Well, it's like, I can't send them anything else. There's nothing else I can do for him. So I think prayers are pretty damn good. Okay. So horrible, horrible situation. I hate that it happened. Uh, but you know, I, I suppose that's just what we have to deal with. Um, and that's just something when you look at this, I think it's a great learning opportunity. Uh, unfortunately that had to be paid for in blood for school administrators all across the country that there were so many warning signs about this kid. Cause everybody always asks, you know, what about the warning signs? Was there any warning signs before this happened? There, there weren't just warning signs. There were warning bullhorns and flashlights. Like it was, it was, it was, Every neon sign pointing to the fact that this kid was in immediate danger to himself and to others, uh, especially to others. And the fact that he was able to stay at school that day, the fact that no one checked his personal property is hit on him, his backpack or his locker. Like there were so many ways that this could have been prevented and it wasn't. And it's, uh, you know, it was a deadly, unfortunate circumstance. All right. Next question here. So we're getting into some lighter questions off of that last one. But who would win in a fight, Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal? <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So I got, I've got three of these in a row. So you guys just get ready. Chuck Norris or Steven Seagal. Okay. I'm gonna look this up real quick. I have no idea how old these guys even are. So let's see Chuck Norris. Uh, Chuck Norris age. You can hear me Google live. Isn't that interesting? So Chuck Norris is, how old are you, Chuck? He was born in 1940, 1940. Holy crap. So he's 81 years old. Chuck Norris is 81 years old. Okay. So let's look up Steven Seagal. Cause it, this matters, right? So an 80-year-old fighting Steven Seagal, he was born in 1952, so he's 69 years old. Okay, so you just asked me about these two elderly men, like who would win in a fight. Um, well, here's the deal. Both of them are experts at martial arts styles that aren't any good, right? So Steven Seagal is apparently an Aikido expert, and Chuck Norris is a karate expert. But what I would say is... The, those fighting styles have some things that can be used, but those fighting styles by themselves are not completely worthless. But, um, man. All right, I'm going to change this question because a 69-year-old versus an 81-year-old, I don't even want to think through that. But I'm pretty sure that Steven Seagal is significantly bigger than than Chuck Norris is. Man, I don't know. This is such a dumb question. Why are you making me answer this? Um, okay, let's go back to Chuck Norris. Yeah, people that are listening to this right now are like, what is he doing? I'm currently trying to find stats on these two guys to see how big they are or whatever. Okay, I can't really find it. I can't really see it here. But this is what I'm just going to go with. I'm going to go with Chuck Norris, that if this were an actual fight, that, you know you know what? I'm changing it right now. I'm going with Steven Seagal. So let's take them back both to their prime. So they're both 28 years old. They're in their prime. They know everything they know about their respective, you know, martial arts, Aikido uh, for Steven Seagal and karate for Chuck Norris. So here's the thing. If you already know how to wrestle and you already know ground grappling and jujitsu and stuff like that, having some karate is a good idea. Having some Aikido is a good idea. But in this situation, these little karate kicks and karate punches are probably not going to be enough to take over a guy that was Steven Seagal's size, right? Because the size thing is completely diminished if you can take the guy down to the ground, if you have a skill set. Because if Chuck Norris doesn't knock you out with the first roundhouse kick or something like that, even if he's wearing his uh, you know Walker Texas Ranger boots, I'm assuming Steven Seagal could get his hands on him and it would be maybe a bigger issue for Chuck Norris. So in this ridiculous question that you forced me <laughs> to answer here and having to do all this research live, I guess I'll go with Steven Seagal in his prime against Chuck Norris in his prime. All right, next one here. Who would win in a fight? George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Okay, so off the top of my head, I, I, I guess I don't know, but I would say George Washington because, you know, everyone just looks at George Washington as, you know, this the guy that had wooden teeth that was our first, pres first president or something like that. But George Washington was an absolute gangster. I, if you'll remember, he was the general, sorry to all of our listeners in the UK, I know you're still a little bit sour about this, but he was the general that led us in the fight for our independence, right? So I haven't heard any similar stories for Abraham Lincoln in terms of him fighting and doing all those different things. He was tall. Maybe he had a little bit of a reach advantage or something like that, but I'm going to go and say George Washington would take him out. All right. looks like we got the last question of the day here. If you had to live outside of the United States, where would you live and why? 
Okay, so this is actually the question that I asked Mike Ridland on a uh, interview that I did of him recently, and I think he said Norway. I think uh, I think he has some family that's in that area or whatever. Now, the thing about this question is I would have easily and quickly answered this as either New Zealand or Australia, like two years ago. I would have said, because I loved those areas, like especially New Zealand. I probably would have said New Zealand. New Zealand felt a lot like Oklahoma. It was like Oklahoma with an accent with some, you know, better views or something like that. I really loved my time there. But seeing what those or what those organizations, they act like organizations, but seeing what those governments have done in lieu, you know, basically with what is going on with COVID, it is absolutely unbelievable seeing what's happening in those countries. You know, they're making these camps in Australia that look a lot like concentration camps for the unvaccinated. Uh, the way that they refer to these uh, people that have decided to not get the vaccine is crazy. The complete lack of liberty for these people. Uh, obviously, they took away most of the people's guns in Australia. So that's caused some major issues uh, for these people that if they did want to push back on the government, they couldn't. So that wipes them off the board. So to be honest, off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, man, I, I'm not really sure exactly where I would move because, you know, I don't really want to live anywhere in Europe. I don't really find any interest in South America. You know, Africa seems a little crazy. Everything, all the animals there want to kill you, I guess, kind of like Australia. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I came up with something. So if it were just me by myself, like no wife, no son, no sons, anything like that, I would want to live on the Isle of Isla of Scotland. Okay. So for any of you Isla fans out there, right? Isla is a small Island off the coast of Scotland, but that's where we get Lagavulin, Laphroaig, Bowmore, Ardbeg. That's where we get, you know, my favorite scotches on the planet. So I would love to maybe be around those people. Maybe I could be a sheep herder or something like that. I don't know what I would do there, but if it was just me, I would probably live on the Isle of Isla. But if I had to live with my family somewhere, I'll just have to go with somewhere where I've been before. So I'd have to say Ireland, you know, because I am Irish. Uh, so is my wife, you know, we're descendants of, we have Irish ancestors and those types of things. Uh, we've been to Ireland before. It was fun. You know, we had a great time again. It's Europe, you know, it's part of the you know European union and all that. So that would be the part that I wouldn't like as much, but there you go. That wraps up the last one of the day. I would go to Ireland. So guys, as I said, from the top of the show, if you want your questions answered on a future episode, just make sure you DM me on any of our social platforms or shoot me your questions to info at undaunted.life. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, and we do that with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got one link for you today. I've got Ben Shapiro breaking down the Supreme Court case, the abortion case that we're seeing uh, with the state of Mississippi. It's a 20-minute breakdown of that situation. So he goes into Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and also uh, Dobbs v. Jackson, a women's health organization or whatever they're called. But he goes into that into a lot of detail, so I thought it was interesting. He and I differ in terms of how we think that's a, that it's going to end up breaking down, but I thought that'd be good for you to take in. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review, five-star review, if you don't mind. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook, and you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>